All right, good morning. Nick is correct. We're in Mark 13 this morning. If you don't have your own Bible, there's one in the back of the pew nearby. You can use the index at the front to find the New Testament book of the Gospel of Mark. We're currently in chapter 13. All of chapter 13 is devoted to a single teaching that Jesus gives in response to the question of his disciples uh, after Jesus makes a comment about the, the impending destruction of the Jewish temple. Uh, we generally refer to this uh, teaching as the Olivet Discourse because it was given on the Mount of Olives uh, looking over the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Effectively, what Jesus does throughout this chapter is he talks about the end, the, the final things, uh, the last things that will happen on earth. He explains and prophesies about the future. Um, and as we saw last week, he begins by warning his disciples about the things that aren't signs and symbols of the end that are going to be status quo for life after Jesus until he returns. And so probably the, the best way that he puts it in, in that is he says, look, there's going to be earthquakes and famines. There's going to be wars, even international wars, world wars. There's going to be all these things. And he says, but these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Uh, Pastor Nick last week compared it to Braxton Hicks. It's evidence that there's going to be a birth, but it's not actually doing anything productive. It, like I said, it's the status quo. Um, but as we'll read this morning, I want you to notice he shifts gears. And so in the beginning, he's saying, don't worry, don't be afraid, don't be mistaken. And now he's going to say, but when you see this, then act. So it's, it's almost as if the passage so far is going, not yet, not yet, now. That's, that's what the passage is like. And as we look at this, it's basically going to go from that now moment all the way to the end that Pastor Nick mentioned this morning, the full-fledged return of Christ. And so let's read the passage together in Mark 13, verse 14. But... Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house or take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who were nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved for the sake, however, for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs 
and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Let's pray. Father, when it comes to an understanding of, of the end, I think many of us naturally and solely, if we even get this far, only think about our own end. We, we think of the end of the story being, being our, our death and our, our funeral and these types of things. Um, but Jesus here speaks to a group of people, all of them have passed away, and he talks about the big capital E end. And so if those words were valuable for them, they're valuable for us this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to perceive that value this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us through your word this morning uh, and that our life would be shaped in light of the understanding you give here. We pray this in your name. Amen. There's no getting around the fact that what we've just read is intense. And I mean that in two different levels. First off, it's, it's intense as in absolutely unique in world history. It's intense as in the, the word, you know, apocalyptic, which, if you're unfamiliar, is a Greek word that we use because of the Bible. That would be the Greek word behind our word revelation, apocalypsis, the unveiling, okay? Uh, but... But here, Jesus is being absolutely apocalyptic, right? There's no getting around that. Look again with me at verse uh, 24. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken, okay? This is end of the world stuff, and there's no getting around that. And so that's the second reason it's intense. Not only is the imagery or the reality of this passage intense, but it's also intense for us because I think we don't want to talk about this. I think, I think even when we try and talk about Jesus, I think usually the apocalyptic nature of his teachings gets left on the table. I think it's something we don't like to address. I think it's something that makes us uncomfortable. I think it makes Jesus much more controversial uh, than a lot of other places because now we have to wrestle with a man 2,000 years ago who places a bet in full confidence on what it's going to be like when it all goes down. You know, there's three things that I want to draw from your passage this morning about Jesus, and here's the first one. Jesus was a prophet of history. Okay. Now, about 200 years ago, there was a group of Christians, primarily in Germany, who had been enamored by the scientific method and worried about the way that, that the growth in science and technology was impacting Christianity, and so they took the same skepticism of the scientific method and they applied it to the Bible and they tried to find the real Jesus the historical Jesus, the Jesus that lay behind the text, 
and a lot of their presuppositions were relatively unfair. Obviously, they would say, we can't trust the Bible as it was written because that was written by people and they were answering their own things and they made Jesus their poster child for their own teachings. But there's no way to explain the New Testament without a real Jesus. It's unlike the, the legend of Robin Hood, for example. There is history here, visible and tangible history. So they started to go, can we peel back and know for sure who the real Jesus is? And of course, they stripped Jesus of being a miracle worker. And of course, they stripped Jesus of, uh, of saying anything that talked about the future of the church, because how should he know? And they also tried to strip the prophetic nature of passages like these, and then a man, no friend to what I would call orthodox or biblical Christianity, came along by the name of Albert Schweitzer. And he dis, uh, explained and proved basically beyond a doubt, not even liberal Christians who reject the New Testament as being a viable source of information uh, can deny what Albert Schweitzer taught. And he basically said, if we reduce Jesus down to his smallest and most guaranteed component, it's as an apocalyptic teacher. He just said there's just too much of it, and it's too present, and it's too interwoven, and it's too focal to be completely removed. He said you remove the apocalyptic nature of Jesus' ministry, and you lose the real Jesus. And this is coming from a man who would rather throw out most of the New Testament as being unreliable. He said if you take the New Testament and you sift it, and you shake it out, what you have left is clearly an apocalyptic figure. Somebody who had words about the end. And we can see that as those who believe that maybe we should take these documents that only follow Jesus' life by a couple of decades at most, written by people who were there and eyewitnesses. For us, when we believe uh, that the Bible is reliable, and when more than that, we believe that it was written as Paul says, under the power of the Holy Spirit and is actually very much the word of God, how much more should we not lose that peace? The apocalyptic nature of Jesus' ministry. And let me kind of double down on this for just a second. Matthew, Mark, Luke all record this teaching called the Olivet Discourse. Mark is actually the shortest version of this teaching. Like most of his gospel, he keeps things brief. Um, but all of them focus on it, and in each play, in each gospel, it is the final teaching of Jesus before the passion narrative, before the Last Supper and the praying in Gethsemane and the death, and it's the culmination of Jesus spending days teaching publicly in the temple. It is, it is the uh, final part of Jesus' big prophetic uh, confrontation of the powers that be. But Mark is especially helpful to illustrate. Not only is Mark most likely our oldest gospel, because Matthew and Luke seem to make heavy use of what Mark has already written in forming theirs together, but also it's the one that records the least long-form words of Jesus. Okay, it focuses more on the action. If you had a red-letter Bible and you flick through Mark, you won't see pages of red like you would if you opened Matthew or John. There are only two long-form teachings that Mark includes, and one of them is this one. 
And so Mark, as he's putting together this gospel and saying, how can I summarize the most important parts of who Jesus is? Says this is inescapable. This is essential. Jesus was a prophet of history, and we have a pretty good validation of the fact, because remember where this begins at the beginning of chapter 13, verse 1, and as he came out to the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Unlike what he's about to say that goes way down the calendar, all the way past our age, what he says here is past tense for us, and actually it's something that all of his disciples will live to see. The generation that he's talking to, he says, this is what's going to happen to the temple. Now, here's some things that are significant about that. Okay, living in Capitol Hill, guessing that a building is going to be torn down is an easy guess. Okay, nothing remains here. And remember, there's not a building standing in our neighborhood that has lasted more than a couple hundred years. Not even close, right? This building itself is 106 years old, and that's significant on this coast. Even if we go to the other coast, we might find buildings that go back 200 years, maybe a little bit more than that. But the building that Jesus is talking about here has already been standing for 400 plus years. This is the temple that the Jews rebuilt when they returned from Babylon. Okay. It's been there. It's been standing there. And more significant than that, it's been under a constant and incredible remodel for 40 years. Older than Jesus and most of his disciples, this building has been constantly being worked on and becoming more and more glorifying. And honestly, there is not a single religious building that you have visited that would hold a candle to what this temple was. Solid gold doors into the Temple Mount. The entire temple compound is acres and acres of standing ground with this huge building in the middle. It is really incredible. The foundation stones that this is built on are several tons and the length of this room. When he says not one stone will be left upon another, we're talking about a significant form of disaster. In fact, this remodel continues after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for almost another 30 years. It's not completed until 66 AD, and just so you know, this is all the handiwork of Herod. Okay. The Herod that Jesus stands before in the Passion. He is trying to improve this temple. He puts, it's his life work. It is his definitive work. And it takes him until 66 AD, almost 70 years in total, to finish this building project. Four years later, 70 AD, Rome finally has enough of the rebellious Jews, surrounds Jerusalem, destroys and sacks the city, and dismantles the temple because as they put it on fire the gold runs down between the stones and so for them to get it out of the nooks and crannies means a total destruction this is in the generation that jesus speaks to if you go back and you read the old testament Deuteronomy tells you that the validation of a prophet is a pretty simple one i think it's actually one that we would appreciate a real prophet is someone who says something and then it happens, right? 
But if you read the Old Testament, it's full of prophecies that go well beyond the life of the prophet. But the idea and the premise is that there are two types of forward-looking prophecies that we find in the Old Testament prophets. Ones that happen in their day and age and ones that do not. In fact, if you read Isaiah or any of the 12, what we call the minor prophets, so starting with Hosea till the end of your Old Testament, you'll see that often they're organized with things the prophet said during his life that came to pass and then the other things the prophet said. The validation of the ministry and then the rest of the words that were given. Okay? In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is that Jesus' prediction about the destruction of Jerusalem, not just the one given here, but if you read Matthew, it's more extensive. He says Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies. He, he says all of these things, he lays it out, but these validate the predictive nature of his words. Now, I think one of the reasons why we struggle with the prophetic is because of that validation. But we also struggle with the apocalyptic. And that struggle's a little bit different. It's not just because, okay, maybe you can predict what's going to happen in the next generation, but, you know, but thousands of years later? It's more than this. It's the whole premise of the end of the world despite the fact that we are probably the most apocalyptic culture that has ever lived, watch our movies, we're constantly worried that any day will be the last day, right? The idea of, uh, of a God-ordained, God-instituted end of the world, not a human screw-up, which is what we're pretty sure is going to happen, right? We're really uncomfortable with this. But here's one of the things that I don't think we always understand. God is actively working in history. He has a plan. He has a goal. He's working towards it. In fact, he says in the book of Isaiah, I've declared it from the beginning and nothing will stand in my way from its completion. A lot of us have grown up in a culture inherited by early American culture that was deistic in nature. Yes, there's a God. Yes, he made the world the end. Okay? Deism says God is the all-powerful being we think he is, but he is completely disinterested in life as we know it. The definitive illustration of this is the watchmaker. God built the watch with care and intricacy. He wound the watch, and then he walked away. But that is not the God of the Bible, and it's not the God of Christianity, and most importantly, it's not the God of Jesus. The God of Jesus has a plan and cares not just for the things that have happened and is not just reacting to the things that human beings do, do, but has a plan, so much so that Paul tells us that Christ was crucified before the beginning of time itself. It's not as if things went haywire with creation and he went, oh, how am I going to fix this? History has more in common with a well-written book and all of the ethereal intent that that implies than it does with a let's-just-see-what-happens documentary. And so God wrote the beginning, 
Here, he's playing out the middle as he sends Jesus to walk among us, to live among us, to teach among us, and most importantly, to die for us. And he's authored the end. And Jesus comes as a representative of that. And if you remove this reality from Jesus, you remove Jesus himself. And so he says, look at verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be. Now, that is not just a mouthful, it's relatively cryptic, right? What in the world is the abomination of desolation? In fact, this is one of the things that we criticize so-called predictive people, say, take Nostradamus, for example, is their prophecies are so generic, it's really easy to just fill in the pieces, But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is referring to scripture. He's taking this label and connecting the dots between the words he's about to say and what has already been spoken by an Old Testament prophet, specifically Daniel. If you read Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12, you'll see that those things underlie and lay behind what Jesus is talking about here. There has been an anticipation of an event And he lays it out here. In fact, he's not the only one to do so because there are those who read this passage, especially in Mark's telling, and say, this abomination of desolation is the same thing that we read in verse 3. Not one stone will be left upon another. That's the same event. In other words, all of Jesus' words here have been already fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, there is another similar reality in the Old Testament. There are those who take the words of Daniel and they say, well, Daniel is actually talking about something that happened before Jesus even came. He's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? One of the tetrarchs, uh, so Alexander dies, he leaves four generals in charge, and for the next few hundred years until until Rome really gets rolling, they rule. One of those tetrarchs, Antiochus, rules over Israel and decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set up a statue to Zeus in the temple, the one built in the days of Nehemiah, this same temple here. I'm going to sacrifice a pig right there, and I'm going to put religious prostitution in the temple courts. And he does so. And that leads to the Maccabean Revolt, which you've probably heard of. It leads to the festival of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. It's all bound up in this reality. The problem is, Jesus is familiar with this event. He knows that this has happened, and here he speaks of it as being still future tense. Whereas Antiochus Epiphanes may prefigure or provide a good illustration of what's to come, Jesus says, when you see, not when they saw. Now the second question becomes, okay, but what is this going to look like? What is the abomination of desolation? One of the best ways to read the Bible is to read it as a commentary on itself. This is one of my favorite hacks to reading scripture, is to recognize that the Bible talks about the Bible. So here Jesus talks about Daniel. But Paul, under the instruction of Jesus, also talks about these things and does so in a way that connects the dots with other passages. And I want to just show that to you right now. So look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, side note, Most likely, what we're about to read in 2 Thessalonians was written before the Gospel of Mark. That's important, okay? We read our New Testament and we go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the letters, and since the letters take place after the events of the Gospels, 
right? After the day of Pentecost, after the beginning of the church, we think the Gospels were written earlier. That's backwards. The letters were written first. The Gospels were written later in life. The letters were written by eyewitnesses. The Gospels were written to encode that eyewitness in their late age. Does that make sense? So what I'm saying to you is what we're about to read, its understanding and its teaching predates the existence of the Gospel of Mark and yet emphasizes the same thing, representing the continuity between Jesus' teaching and his apostles. But I want you to notice how clearly connected this is. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Okay. Here it's talking about the day of the Lord, according to verse 2. But read verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship, notice this, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now you go back and read Daniel. That is what Jesus is talking about. That is what the abomination of desolation looks like. It looks like when an actual person, who we popularly call the Antichrist, starts an arrangement with the Jews that seems very peaceful, and then one day, after all of this political diplomacy, steps into the temple itself, sets up a throne, and says, by the way, I am the God of all gods, the one who is worthy of worship. That is the abomination of desolation. Now, is that a visible and tangible and spotable sign? Pretty much. To the degree that none of us even think it's possible that it could happen, right? Which means you wouldn't deny it if it happened. You'd be like, well, there it is. In other words, again, Jesus is not, at this point, giving new information. Paul is not even giving new information. He's synthesizing okay, what all the prophets have said about these things, drawing all these things together. But notice, again, the difference. If you see wars, don't worry. Don't be afraid. If you see famines, don't worry about it yet. But when you see this, okay, here's the difference. Like I said, uh, Nick used the illustration of Braxton Hicks, right? These phantom contractions that don't actually lead to the birthing of a baby, but you only get them if you're pregnant, at least I assume so, right? There's, there's going to be a labor, but it's not the beginning of labor, okay? In comparison, what Jesus points to here, this is water breaking, right? When you see this, the baby is coming, okay? Now, I know some of you are educated enough to know that although that's the pop culture beginning line of birth, it's not really that way. But I'm using the pop culture idea here, right? My water breaks, the baby is coming. That's the event here. Okay. That's what Jesus speaks to. In fact, it's so significant, he basically says, drop everything you are, you are doing and run. Too late to pack a bag, right? This is, uh, you know, Pam Beasley in the office, who's way beyond when she should have headed to the hospital. There's no going home now. There's no swinging by to get a bag. This baby is on its way. And so notice what he says here. He says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let not the one who is on his housetop go down, nor enter his house or take anything out. Okay, side note. Roofs in Judea are flat. They're basically patios, and they're accessed externally. So the idea is go straight down the steps and don't even go back through your front door to grab stuff. Just go. Okay. He goes on. He says, uh, verse 16, let the one who's in a field not turn back to take his cloak. Okay, Don't go home. Don't grab a coat. Just run. 
Because what's going to follow this announcement from this Antichrist character is going to be the greatest persecution on the Jewish people that, have ever, that has ever existed. See, that's another reason why this can't be talking about 70 AD, because notice what Jesus says in verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation of God created until and now and never will be. Okay. In other words, there's lots of lowercase t tribulation. In fact, the Jews have had their fair share of horrors, yeah? But none of them equals the capital T tribulation. All of them just prefigure. All of them just point to this full reality that will be so significant that Jesus says, you don't even have time to stop. You just need to run and you need to hide. Okay. But I want you to notice uh, that this tribulation here is not just something that's going to happen localized in Judea. In fact, it's not just something that's going to ha impact the Jews. Okay? If you go back and you read the book of Revelation at the end of this, as John kind of lays all these things out, we're talking about worldwide tribulation, destruction, death, blood loss, war, famine, capital T. Okay. Significant. And I hate that. But I was thinking this morning about how much I hate this. When I think about the reality that is to come, the, that the final chapter of God's story is so horrific. And I was thinking about mothers in labor in particular. Okay, I have five children. And I've been a pastor long enough to have had plenty of friends and close friends have babies. And I will tell you that I hate labor. It terrifies me. It terrifies me when I'm in the room. It scares me when my friends have some sort of stupid policy that nobody gets to hear about the baby unless they're family, so I don't get to hear till three days after the baby is born and presumably healthy. I don't smoke, but I understand why they give new fathers cigars, okay? Because labor is terrifying. It is a horrifying and climactic reality that wreaks havoc on a human body and so many things can go wrong. Even in our modern day, why do we always turn to a cesarean? Because that's how high stakes it is. That that's preferable to the danger involved in just letting things roll as they are. Labor terrifies me. But you know what's at the end of the labor? A brand new living baby. A primary reason the Bible ties this concept of the end times to labor is because labor produces a baby. Okay. When John gets the full story, the one that he records for us in Revelation, and remember, this is something that he witnesses. He's describing it for us. We get it secondhand. He was there and he saw it. We read, and I saw a third of the living human beings die. We read it. He saw it. And he gets to the end of the book. And this is what he says. He says, even so, come Lord Jesus. Never do we see Jesus or his disciples rubbing their hands together in excitement, waiting for the whole world to get what's coming. Never once. It is described as a horrible time. In fact, it's so horrible. Look at what it says in verse 20. 
If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Here's the second thing I want you to get this morning about Jesus. Jesus is not just a prophet of history. He is the Lord of history. Do you see what this is saying? It's saying that this is going to happen within codified constraints because God is interested in salvation. He says if this were just to go off the rails and let it happen, there'd be no humanity left. He says, but for the sake of the elect, the days are shortened. And I don't think, again, that means that God had some sort of town hall meeting to discuss these things and took advisory and said, well, that's fine. We'll make it seven years instead of eight. That's not the idea here, right? The idea of shortened is that it has codified boundaries that it will not pass beyond. God is in control. The book of Revelation, although it talks about the end times, is not written to people living out the end times, is it? John writes it to his constituency, which is a church that has been freshly devoided of apostles. John is the last living apostle, and he's banished to an island of Patmos, and the church is going, what now? Not only that, but it's going under its first, not its last, but its first significant persecution. Christians are being thrown in prison and killed. That's where the apostles went, right? And so the question the church is asking in those days, about 50 years after the life of Jesus, is where is God? What's, he's, what's he doing? Are we going to survive? Will we make this through this? And John is given this revelation, not of what's going to happen in this generation, but the last generation, and it is way worse. But what do you see? You see that God is on the throne. You see that victory is inevitable. You see, one of the great implications for us about this is if God reigns and rules over the tribulation, then don't you think he can handle your lowercase t tribulation? Some of us are more concerned than others about the fate of Christianity in America. But whatever may come, it's still not going to live up to unless it becomes interwoven with this reality. And yet God is still in charge, still maintains the boundaries, still loves and cares for the elect, still seeks the good of the world, still plans for a baby. And the baby will be born. You see, Jesus is the Lord of history. In fact, this is something we do wrong. We take a a psychic and a prophet and we put them in the same thing and we say they both predict the future. No. No, a prophet reveals what God says he is going to do, not just what's going to happen. Do you see the difference there? One involves intention. It involves planning and involves all of the total reality and power that comes with God. God says, I'm just going to tell you what I'm doing. And as he makes clear over and over again, nothing will thwart it. In fact, that's a major lesson about the end times as well. The end times is not just God's judgment on the world. It's also mankind's final rebellion against God. In fact, notice what he says here. He says, in those days, okay, so this guy claims himself to be God. Things get horrible and then notice what he says verse 21 then if anyone says to you look here is the Christ or look there is do not believe it for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible the elect now again the New Testament gives us more light on this and it calls it the great deception God takes a world that refuses to believe the truth 
and gives them over to the greatest lie. Okay, so it'll also be a time of tremendous deception. Okay, one that involves, uh, you know, signs and wonders. And he says, but not only am I going to tell you what to look for in the end, but I'm going to tell you what to look for when I return. And notice what he says there in verse um, 26. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So here's people saying, look, there's the Christ. And he says, no, 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 no. They'll see when, when Jesus comes. It's not going to happen in a corner. It's not going to happen behind closed doors. It's not going to be hidden and visible. You're not going to have to get tickets for admission. Okay? It is going to be a worldwide, everybody knows reality. And it's not surprising to see why. Because what is you know, the preamble to Jesus' return? Verse 24, in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And so there's a danger here of deception, but notice what Jesus says in verse 23, but be on guard, I've told you all things beforehand. Okay. This is something that I've been learning about God this year as I've been looking at the Old Testament. There's always those occasional places where it looks like God utilizes deception to get his will done. Okay. So he sends a deceiving spirit into prophets, according to Micaiah. Uh, or these types of things. But what's, what's so striking to me and what I'd never realized is when God plays that way, he plays with an open hand. He doesn't just send in this deceiving spirit, but Jeremiah to identify it and say, here's what God is doing. Okay? In the same way, the script is laid out here. And that's clearly one of the reasons why Jesus is laying this out. Now, I believe that none of us will see these things here, and that's not because I don't think the end could come at any time. It's because I believe that the elect that Jesus is talking about here are Israelites, are Jews, uh, that when we want to talk about our fate as Christians, us being caught up with the Lord, this precedes these things, and nothing holds that back. That could happen at any time. Okay. But he leaves a written record. But here's the thing about written records that are warnings. It's much better to read them and familiarize them yourself with them in advance, isn't it? Right? The worst thing I can imagine is that your house is on fire and you go, okay, now how does this fire extinguisher work? That's why they keep the steps simple on it, so that may happen, but it's much better to read them in advance. That's what Jesus says here. He says, be on guard, be prepared, be ready. This is why I'm telling you all these things in advance. Okay. But we see here that Jesus is the Lord of history. He's in control of it. He's got a plan for it. And then finally, I want you to notice that Jesus is the climax of history. He's the point of history. He's the meaning of history. To some degree, this is not all that the Bible says about these things, but he's the baby at the end of the labor. And not like the first time, not like wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger, but king of kings and lord of lords above all powers and principalities forever and forevermore amen in other words this is the birth of the kingdom this is the birth of god's eternal reign this is the birth of the life that finally overcomes and ends sin okay it's all bound up right here and it's all bound up in the person of jesus i think you know i think we all know that you can't explain what a story is about 
if you don't sit through the ending, okay? Shyamalan trained us on that as children, right? There's always the twist. But even when there's not a twist, we can't say what the story's about if we miss the ending because the ending finishes the story and provides its meaning. We don't even have to say, and the moral of the story is. The ending is the moral of the story. It ties everything together. Whether it's a story of despair or hope, you can't answer that question until you read the last page, right? What I'm suggesting to you is we can't understand the purpose or significance of human history at all without the ending, and the ending is about Jesus. He is the climax of the story, and that's not just true of the world story, it's true of your life personally. The climax of your story will be wrapped around, tied to, completed by the person of Jesus Christ. Whether it's defined by his salvation, paid for by his blood, offered to you freely and received merely through faith, or whether it's by his righteous and true judgment of your life and determining your eternal fate, he is the linchpin of the meaning of your life, your personal history. And again, let me remind you, but be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus doesn't say, surprise, it's all about me, I wish you would have figured it out. He's actively and regularly and constantly working towards demonstrating the fact that Jesus is Lord. And one day, Paul tells us in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, whether on earth or above the earth or under the earth, every mouth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the climax of history, and it's so appropriate at this time, in this season, that we think about these things, because like Pastor Nick mentioned this morning, we're in the Advent season. The word Advent just means appearing or coming, okay? We call it the Advent season because in it we remember when Jesus appeared, when God took on flesh and was born and lived a human life, okay? When the Emmanuel, the God with us of Isaiah, was fulfilled and God came and was with us in the flesh, but it's a great time also to remember that God is coming again in Jesus Christ. That the same Jesus who died for us, who bled for us, who rose from the dead, will return. And why does that matter to us? Does it matter to us because we'll be here to see it? Does it matter to us because this is inevitably going to happen, you know, in 2050? Uh, I'm trying to think of an, I don't even know what year it is. 2021? No, it's because this defines everything else. Let me finish here. Years and years ago, Nicolas Cage put out a movie, as he does like every three months. Uh, the movie was called Next, and it was about a guy who could just see it a few minutes into the future. Just a few. That was it. But there's this line in the movie that's always stuck with me where Nick Cage says, the thing about knowing the future is it changes the present. Right, Because he has just this little insight, it changes the way he acts and responds to the things around him. Okay. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand that. If we can just bend hard enough, we can bend against God's will. That's not what I mean. But nonetheless, knowing the future should change your present. If this is the meaning of history, if this is where everything's going, if, like Peter says, if the elements of the world itself are going to dissolve in a fervent heat, how then should we live now? You see, if Jesus is the climax of history, that's true 
now. That defines our life now. And although eschatology is always about the end things, its application is to the now things. That's why it's so significant that we study these things. My goal for us as a church is not that we would take hold of every aspect and facet of the Bible's teaching of eschatology. Nail down every detail and be right so, you know, like we're betting on horses at the end, we can go, look, we're the ones who had every detail right. No, I want the end time things to take hold of us. To captivate us, to grip us, to shape our lives, to determine our urgency and our hope. Because that is Jesus' goal. He gives only two applications in the Olivet Discourse. Watch and work. Be looking, waiting, anticipating, realizing that this is coming, it's inevitable, it will happen. And get to work. Live in light of that end. Let's pray. Father, I know that the time is short and we feel it this morning as we're already at the end of our service and yet the service is not yet done. But it's also true in our lives and even if we could be comfortable to say, you know what, I don't think the Antichrist is born yet, I don't think the tribulation is that close, I don't think these things are right around the corner, we do not know when our last breath will take place, when our participation in the history on earth will end. I pray, Lord, that we'd live in light of that and not in the despair of the world that says life is all we have and then death is the end, but in this greater reality that death is not the end, that the God who took on flesh, who died and rose again, will raise the world in newness of life. And for those of us who are uncomfortable with these things, who are bothered by the reality of judgment, the bloodshed and the horrors, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us in humility to pray with John, even still, come Lord Jesus, that we would understand the significance of the value and the goodness of your character and the reality of your sovereignty to the degree that we would be able to be open-handed in these things and long for the baby even though we hate the labor. I ask that you do these things in Jesus' name, amen.